We experience twists, turns, loops, and all kinds of other high-speed thrills, plus a little bit of puke with Roller Coaster Tycoon, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 22 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe, and we find ourselves here for the 22nd time to talk about a cool game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. As usual, of course, super excited to be here. Uh, It's nice to be indoors, Toronto specifically, and I know most of uh, North America has been in a bit of a deep freeze these past... uh, this past week or two, so uh, I'm sitting inside wearing some fuzzy pants and uh, looking out at the at the snow and ice and uh, being happy that I don't have to be out there today for any particular reason at all. But enough about the weather report. Uh, there, there has been a lot of news this week, a lot of stuff going on, so I think we should probably get right to it. So for the news, back on January 15th, the fourth set of Steam Greenlight games were approved for distribution on Steam, you know, when they when they come to be ready to release. But why does this matter to us? I mean, a lot of stuff, they've done this four times already. I haven't really mentioned that much about Steam Greenlight releases before this. Well, this time around, the Greenlight release includes the new Leisure Suit Larry game. It looks like the Greenlight campaign that I talked about in uh, previous episodes has succeeded, so it will be available via Steam when it is ready to go. I'll link that news post for uh, for Steam Greenlight for the fourth round of games in the show notes, as I always do, so you guys can go and check it out, and we can grab Larry straight off of Steam when, uh, when things are good to go. Now, in classic Larry news, Leisure Suit Larry's Greatest Hits and Misses is available on GOG.com for both Windows and OS X. Now, I believe this is a repackaging of a previous release. I do remember this Larry's Greatest Hits and Misses being available, you know, years back on, uh, on CD. And uh, if it is the same one, it's, it's quite, a good, uh, quite a good set. It includes Larry 1 to Larry 6, uh, the VGA remake of Larry 1, and the original text-based game Soft Porn Adventure, the game that the entire Larry series was based on. The whole set's 10 bucks on good old games, Check it out. I'll link it in the show notes. If you don't want to spend 10 bucks, I'm sure it'll go on sale, uh, you know, all in good time. Or if it doesn't, at least I'm pretty sure when the new Larry game comes out, it may they may have a cross promotion to that too. But if you really love Larry, you haven't been able to play it for a lot of years, go for it. GOG, 10 bucks. You got six games. And, uh, and yeah, check it out. So since I started talking about Steam Greenlight, let's go back to that. Over on the Facebook group this week, a regular contributor, BJ, who, who has most definitely sent us in emails a couple of times, brought a game to my attention. It's called Pinball Arcade, and it looks pretty cool. Here's what he wrote on the Facebook group. So BJ writes, Since we're all retro-minded PC gamers here, I would like to make a major request. Please, please, please click the link below and share this link with as many people as possible. I want nothing more... Then for the pinball arcade to hit Steam, because I love pinball. 
The people at Farsight Studios not only love pinball, they lovingly restore real-world pinball machines like Twilight Zone, Elvira, and the Party Monsters, and Star Trek The Next Generation to a sheen that no real-world pinball table will be able to keep for long. So I will link this in the show notes. It's a, It looks like a pretty cool game. The, the graphical representation of the pinball machines looks really cool. And, uh, you know, vote for it if you want to see it on Steam Greenlight. I think it would be a really cool addition to uh, to kind of our retro gaming feel. I was never a huge pinball fan myself, but, uh, you know, I always did play pinball when I would go to the arcade. And, uh, you know, if you want to see it, vote for it. That's what Steam Greenlight is for. Next, if you refer back to the Space Quest episode, you'll remember me talking about a man named Ken Allen. He did the great music for Space Quest 4 and many other really cool games of the time, many of which were Sierra titles, some of which were not. Here's a quick reminder of the kind of music that Ken Allen created. is memorable and really is kind of the top of the line of uh, of music especially out of the sierra games and all that at the time so the first bit of news is that ken allen is now confirmed to be on board as the composer for the two guys from andromeda space venture project which is well underway by now this is amazing news as ken composed as i just said most of the memorable music from the space quest series we can only hope that he can recapture the same magic and the same humor he was able to create the first time around in the later Space Quest games and the Space Quest 1 VGA remake. Secondly, with regard to Mr. Ken Allen, uh, he has launched his own Kickstarter. It is for a music collection that he is calling Under the Half Dome. It's an album based on the best of the game music he's composed throughout his long career. Here's a quick clip of what he has to say about it from his Kickstarter video. So, I'm launching this Kickstarter to take the music that sounds like this and to make it sound more like this. Well, this will contain tracks from Space Quest, King's Quest, Dr. Brain, and other non-Sierra projects that Ken really likes and that he worked on. They'll be remastered, as you just heard, using modern instrument libraries, and I'm sure they will sound awesome. The Kickstarter reached its $10,000 funding goal in under 48 hours. It still has 24 days to go, and there are some very cool stretch goals if the funding keeps going up, like he'll have... Uh, live guest musicians playing on certain tracks, other stuff like that. So if you love vintage game music just like I do, this is certainly something you want to go check out. And even though he's reached his goal, you really should still give if you want to, if you want to see this come to fruition. I think it's going to be a really, really cool project. Now, a few items in, uh, in beta news. So the Elder Scrolls Online beta sign-up has gone live. I've been following this one off and on. I'm actually currently playing through the Elder Scrolls Skyrim, and of course this series started out back in 1994 under DOS with the Elder Scrolls Arena. If you're a fan of the series and aren't going to be playing Skyrim for the rest of 2013 like I am, check out the sign-up at signup.elderscrollsonline.com. Of course, I will put that link, as I always do, into the 
show notes. So you want to try Elder Scrolls Online, want to get into that beta, mess around and uh, see, then feel free to go and sign up. Finally, the SimCity 5 closed beta started January 25th. Aside from the inevitable server load troubles, reports coming out of the beta have been quite positive, at least the reports that EA has been releasing, so God knows if that's really the case or not. Uh, There are a lot of beta key giveaways going on across the web. I've been trying to get one off of uh, the NVIDIA Facebook page. They have been putting some out every day, and uh, I've I've been trying to get in on things, but no go as of yet. So if any reps from EA are listening, I'd love a key. Fire one off, podcast at umbcast.com. So that's that for the news. Lots of stuff going on these past two weeks in the in the retro gaming space or the uh, inspired by retro gaming space, whatever you want to call it. And that is it. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So on to our main topic of the week. This time around, I want to focus on the three games in the Roller Coaster Tycoon series. The first game of the series was called, of course, Roller Coaster Tycoon. It was developed by Microprose and published by Hasbro Interactive. Uh, I seem to be on a bit of a late 90s kick these past few episodes, and I'm sticking to that right now since the first game in the series came out in 1999, one year after I graduated from high school. So first things first, as we generally do, let's talk genre. Roller Coaster Tycoon is a construction and management simulation. Uh, we've seen a few of these by now, including back in the early days of the show with Sim City, and a little later on with an earlier tycoon game in Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon. So I won't spend a ton of time reiterating things we've already talked about, but just to refresh us quickly, a construction and management simulation, or CMS, is a genre of game which requires the player to build, expand, and manage some type of community, project, or business venture using a set of limited resources. Resources can range from natural things like wood and stone to futuristic, like, uh, I don't know, some kind of weird futuristic energy source or whatever, to financial, like, uh, you know, future credits or money or anything else like that, gold, blah, blah, blah. Now, you, as the project manager, are required to make decisions on where to invest your resources to achieve whatever goal is set out. Some CMS games are open-world sandboxes, allowing you to build to any goal you desire, Others have set scenarios with victory and loss conditions. Scenario goals can range from a simple be this big by this date to rebuilding after some type of disaster and anything else you can think of. So done with the genre, on to the story. This section will be much shorter than it has been in recent shows. Like other CMS games, Roller Coaster Tycoon lacks pretty much any sort of overarching storyline or plot developments. Uh, As we've discussed before, a lot of these more open-ended games leave the story up to the player. What story you put into it is the story you get out of it. So, you know, if you're really into this thing from a very technical aspect, from trying to min-max and, you know, make the best park you can and all that, story probably won't enter the equation. You'll probably just take it as, I'm building a theme park, I'm going to make it as good as possible, blah, blah, blah. And on the other approach, you know, you can theme your park with different things and, and you can really put a story behind it as, as who you are as a project manager, who your staff is and all that. It really is uh, just a figment of your imagination. Now, that isn't to say that there isn't any story at all in this game. As we'll see in the gameplay section, the game is made up of a series of scenarios. These scenarios do provide a modicum of background as to the history of the park you're entering, uh, where it is, 
what its challenges are, and uh, you know what the challenges have been, and the challenges that the park is likely to face. All I'm saying is that where you go with it from there is pretty much left up to you. Okay, gameplay time. Well, there isn't a ton of story to be spoken of. There certainly is a lot of gameplay. Roller Coaster Tycoon's gameplay consists entirely of accomplishing preset scenarios. All the scenarios have both some type of performance goal and a time limit in which to accomplish said goal. So with that structure in mind, let's talk about the game. After a small intro sequence, you're dropped into the main menu. You are then provided with a few options. You can start a new game, load a saved game, watch the tutorial, and exit. The tutorial is effectively a kind of pre-scripted mini-scenario where you can watch the computer move the mouse around the screen performing various tasks. I watched it for about 30 seconds uh, before I got totally bored and decided to jump into the first scenario myself. One kind of cool thing about the tutorial is that you can interrupt at any time and take over control yourself by hitting escape. Uh, it would have been nice, I think, if uh, it were a more guided tutorial with either text or audio instruction, but sadly that isn't what we get, which I do find a little odd because I feel like by 1999, the kind of interactive tutorial through the gameplay kind of section was pretty standard. I know like by now it's just the way things are. Your first mission of the game, the first couple of minutes, even at times the first half hour to hour of the game is just a tutorial teaching you how to play. Uh, I feel like that would have been something that would have been much more helpful in, in this situation. But regardless of all that, we jump into the first scenario and it is named Forest Frontiers. So the first scenario, Forest Frontiers, is described as follows. Deep in the forest, build a thrilling theme park in a large cleared area. Uh, the objective of this first scenario is fairly simple. It's to gain 250 guests and have a park rating of 600 by October of the first year. So this is where the fun begins. All scenarios provide you with a basic park framework. You have an entrance with a ticket booth, a main path entering the park, and a chain link fence enclosing the full possible footprint of the park. Some scenarios give you an existing park with some rides pre-built. This first one does not. It is a blank slate with a fairly flat terrain covered by many trees. You also start off with uh, a loan of $10,000. Well, it's currently January year one. We've only got till October of the same year, so there's no time to waste. Unlike other games like SimCity and Railroad Tycoon, where, uh, where you can pause the game and do things, in this game you can't actually build anything while time is stopped. So it kind of puts a little bit of a sense of urgency on you. So first things first, we need a ride if we want to attract guests. Opening the Add Rides slash Attractions menu shows us what rides we have available to install in our park. Uh, rides are not limited to roller coasters, they are split into a few different categories. Firstly, we have Transport Rides. These are rides which also double as a way for guests to get around the park and consist of things like miniature railroads, monorails, and chairlifts. Next, we have Gentle Rides. These are your standard carnival-type non-thrill rides like the, uh, the Haunted House, the Observation Tower, a circus show, Ferris Wheel, and a merry-go-round. Then we have the Thrill Rides. These are the faster-moving rides that are not considered roller coasters. This category contains things like go-karts, that swinging ship, the scrambled eggs, which is kind of like you know the teacups at Disney World, uh, motion simulators, the roto drop, and uh, other more vomit-inducing rides that you know you can you can think of. There are also water rides. This group covers things like the water slide, the log flume, river ride, and the boat rental. 
After that, we have our roller coasters. So if you've ever been to an amusement park, you'll know that there are different types of roller coasters, all of which have different advantages, disadvantages, engineering limitations, and specific requirements. For example, we have the good old-fashioned wooden roller coaster. These old coasters are built on laminated wood tracks topped with flat steel rails on an all-wood support structure. These coasters are all about plenty of airtime, so it's best to put in a lot of steep drops, some sharper turns for lateral g-forces, and generally make riders feel like they're slightly out of control the whole time. Another example is the steel roller coaster. This roller coaster type provides a much smoother ride than the wood coaster and allows for more twists and vertical loops, which the wooden coaster does not support. From there, we go on to suspended coasters, flying coasters, single rail, corkscrew coasters, basically any type of roller coaster you can think of. Think of any time you've gone to, I don't know, Disney World, Universal Studios, a Six Flags, uh, you know, for me, Canada's Wonderland, anything like that. Any kind of roller coaster you can think of is pretty much modeled in this game. So now that we've gone over the four different types of rides, let's get back to where we were. We have an empty park and we need to build things to get people in. So what do we build out of all this? Well, the answer is basically anything you want within some kind of loose rules. Uh, the only way you'll make money through your park is by attracting guests. Guests are visitors to your park. This is the one place where the, where the game is quite unique for its time. Each guest who visits your park is a unique individual. They're tracked by numbers. So guest 221 might like rides with an intensity rating above 4. Guest 153 might like rides with an intensity of 2 to 6. All guests also have a nausea rating, which indicates how likely they are to get sick after riding a more intense ride. So if you have a guest who likes rides of high intensity, but has a nausea rating of none, get ready to follow them around with a bucket, because the second they get off a ride, they're going to puke their guts out. Since we want to cater to as many different types of guests as possible to maximize our profit, the best approach is to offer rides of uh, many different speeds and intensities in the park. So for every death-defying roller coaster you build, remember to build a merry-go-round or a hedge maze for those who don't care for you know that kind of thrill. Okay, so let's spend some of our money now. Let's say we build a merry-go-round and a spiral slide for the wimps in the crowd. Placement of rides is quite important. The only requirement for placing a ride is that none of its footprint can impact any ground higher than kind of itself. So for placing a merry-go-round that has three map squares by three map squares, the whole footprint of the ride must be above ground. Basically, all this means is that the game won't dig into a hillside for you. Now, that isn't to say you can't build your rides above ground. In one scenario, I built my haunted house on a slope. In this case, your attraction will be built with scaffolding underneath to make it level. It's then up to you to design a raised path to get guests up to that raised up attraction. Any ride you build also requires an entrance and an exit. These are small huts which allow your guests to get on and off the rides. These huts are also the point where your system of paths hook up to the rides and by clicking on these entrances and exits it also gives you the ability to control some details about the rides. So with regard to paths, guests are intelligent to a point, but they are happiest when they're able to follow a path. Normal paths are the way guests get from place to place in your park. While you can build a park without any paths at all, the guests' AI is such that their primary need is to be on a path. If they exit a ride and that exit hut is not attached directly to a path, the guests won't die or anything. They'll just kind of wander around aimlessly until they locate a path. 
They will then get on the path and go about their business, albeit with reduced satisfaction because they felt like they were getting lost the whole time. So in addition to having paths, the design of your paths also has a direct correlation to guest happiness. And guest happiness is kind of the most important thing that we are going here. Guest happiness has a direct, uh, direct correlation to your park rating. So if your paths are twisting and confusing or your rides are too far apart, guests will complain about being lost. As I mentioned, paths can also be built off the ground, either as bridges or simply as raised walkways to make your park's layout more interesting. Now, more interesting doesn't mean more confusing. So, you know, if you need to make a path over something, make sure it's worthwhile and that your guests don't kind of just wander around, get to a dead end, turn around, and again, get annoyed because they are lost. So in addition to regular paths, which allow your guests to get from place to place, there's another very important type of path which any theme park goer is intimately familiar with, the queue. Queues are special gated paths that connect up to the entrance gates of rides. Again, queues can be simple straight lines, complex twisting patterns, or multi-level mazes. The most important thing about queues are the placement of their entrances and their length. Obviously, the longer the queue line for a given ride, the more people can line up for it at once. If your queues are too long, guests will complain that they've been waiting in line for, t- for a ride for too long. Uh, you really want to balance between queue length and expected popularity of a given ride. More likely than not, your larger roller coasters will generate more lines than kind of a smaller, safer ride. Making queues too short obviously affects the speed at which a ride will load. I mean, if you don't have enough people in your queue to fill up one load of the ride, you're going to have to wait till the queue fills up again, continue loading. So, you know, not having that really will minimize the amount of time your ride is actually running and making you money. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So now that people are getting on your rides, riding them, having fun, you actually do have the ability to have very precise control over most aspects of your rides and of your park as a whole. Uh, you can open and close rides. You can set their price of admission in addition to the admission price of the park itself making things too expensive and you'll turn off your guests make things too cheap and you're leaving money on the table again like most other things in this game it is a balancing act and you know there's a lot of different ways to go about this one kind of more traditional approach is to make all of the rides in your park free and make your uh your entrance fee to the park very high the other one is to make your entrance fee zero and then make your rides you know make it a a kind of a pay per ride system and that you know that's a bit more work because you have to manage the cost of each individual ride, figure out, well, this ride, you know, I could probably raise the price a little bit. So the easiest way to do it tends to be uh, an admission cost and free rides, unless you want to get really, really crazy into it. You can also do both. And again, that's just a lot more management and you have a lot more opportunity to irritate your guests by making rides too expensive. So for roller coasters and other rides that run on tracks, you can control other things like uh, whether or not the ride operators will wait for a full load before starting the ride, what happens if two trains line up on the ride station. You really do have the opportunity here to make the operation of each of your parks unique, be it from pricing model to the way the rides run to how often the rides run, all kinds of stuff like that. It's really, really, really cool. So of course, your park isn't just run by you. It requires staff to run properly. Now. You don't need to hire people to operate your rides, but you do have four types of employees that you can hire in Roller Coaster Tycoon. First, we have handymen. They're kind of the general laborers of the park. They do all the groundskeeping jobs, such as cutting grass, watering gardens, cleaning up paths of litter and vomit, and emptying garbage bins. Mechanics inspect and maintain your rides. 
Having your rides regularly inspected and serviced is critical to your success. Rides do occasionally break down, more so as they age. When they are not running, they are not making you money, and guess who intended to ride them get upset? More critically, though, if one of your roller coasters has a breakdown, it could result in guest injuries or even deaths. Recovering from such a failure is a challenge. You'll never quite get away from having a few guests not wanting to ride the ride where the accident happened due to their belief that it's dangerous. One approach to that is if one of your roller coasters has a major catastrophe, you just blow it up, get rid of it, build a new one in its spot. Now, if you can't do that or you don't want to do that, you can continue on. Just remember that that ride will kind of never quite reach the potential it could have if something had never gone wrong. Now, you can control your mechanics rate of inspection. You can set each ride the frequency. For each ride, you can set the frequency of uh, you know how often you want it inspected. Now, that will work provided you have enough mechanics to cover all your rides at the rate that you want them to be inspected at. So it's kind of, again, a balancing act of making sure you have enough mechanics, making sure you have enough handymen to keep your park clean, enough mechanics to keep your ride running, or if you want to save some money, not having enough and potentially, you know, pissing off your guests. Uh, next, we have security guards. These staffers kind of patrol your park to minimize theft and vandalism. As your park grows, vandalism becomes a growing problem that, again, detracts from your guests happiness. Finally, we have entertainers. These are staff members dressed in costume which wander the park and entertain your guests. They're a quick way to boost guest happiness, and it does add a little bit of ambiance to your park, having big cartoon pandas wandering around and dancing for, for the kids. It's pretty fun. So in addition to staff and rides, we can also build various services in the park. Bathrooms, food stalls, information kiosks, you know, things like that. These buildings aid both in guest happiness, especially strategically paced bathrooms, and uh, and they offer services, you know, if people are hungry, they can eat, and, and all things like that. The cool things are information kiosks, which are just pure money-making booths. They sell park maps, and they sell umbrellas, because occasionally it does start raining. So if you have information kiosks lying around, People will tend to pay up to $4.50, if not more, for an umbrella if it is raining. So if you offer those, it is, uh, it is damn handy and a damn good way to make money given that, uh, given that the park is being rained on. Uh, as with other things in the park, you can set the price for everything's use. You can set the price of food. You can, set, you can even set the price of bathrooms. If you want to make them pay, pay toilets, you are welcome to do that. And up to a certain point, guests will accept that fact. Uh, you know, there's lots of other utility items which you have access to in your park. Some are purely decorative, like gardens, fountains, uh, different types of paths, different types of scaffolding, different colors of, uh, of, of you know, different things like that. Uh, others do, however, serve a purpose. Trash bins encourage your guests not to litter, and uh, placing benches outside of your more intense rides will allow your guests to take a seat and reduce their risk of getting sick after their uh, their more visceral ride experiences. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So with all these facilities, items, rides, staff, blah, 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 I haven't talked yet about the coolest part of Roller Coaster Tycoon. There are quite a few pre-built roller coasters, log flumes, go-kart tracks, and more, but what fun are those? We're here to build roller coasters. So as I mentioned, each roller coaster type has its own strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. To build a custom coaster, you choose your type and you hit custom. This brings you to the build interface with a roller coaster station set as the default starting point. 
The size of the station determines the maximum length and number of trains you can queue up because the trains can only be as long as the station. Remember, longer trains take longer to accelerate and may get hung up partway through your coaster. You can then add all kinds of track pieces. Obviously, your coaster needs to go up, so you can easily select an upsloping track with a tow chain. Most coasters have two sets of inclines, normal and steep. They also have other special track pieces like banking curves, loops, helixes, water splashes, and on-ride photos, which you can then charge money for. Your only limitations within the confines of the coaster type that you chose are money and space. Uh, you build your coasters one track section at a time in an effort to create one complete circuit. Getting the track to line up at the end can be quite a challenge. Uh, this is both where the game really shines and also shows its limitations. At times, building the coasters can be quite challenging. I know a few times I just gave up and went with a pre-made. Uh, you don't really have any way to tell if your roller coaster will even run without sending it through a test run. Since most roller coasters basically run on gravity, your ride has to be proportioned properly so that the trains have enough initial velocity to go up any inclines and basically get around the track you've built. The modeling for this, like the physics modeling of this, is, is really great and it's kind of fun to see your test train almost make it up a hill only to slide back down and hang up in kind of a valley on your track. The limitation here is really the interface. It's tough to go in and modify a ride once it's done. The isometric view that you know we've seen in a lot of other games like this, like SimCity, uh, can make it difficult to see parts of your coaster and it can be very difficult trying to make your tracks meet at the end of your ride. But all that aside, custom coaster building really does allow you to go crazy with your creativity and really make a custom looking park and a ride that so suits both your preferences and the terrain. Guests love it when coasters go underground and that's almost impossible with the pre-built rides. Building these rides is a ton of fun. It would just be nice if there were an easier way to go about it and maybe if they had kind of a system set up to tell you as you were building the ride if you know your, your train probably wouldn't make it up this incline or if it would you know not be going very fast or it would just be nice to not have to build the whole thing and then all of a sudden see ah you know what this doesn't work the train doesn't make it up or it stops halfway through or it's going way too slow and then you know just modifying a coaster once you've finished building it does become a little bit difficult you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for Alright, tech focus time. So since we're still messing about in the late 90s, this system requirements for this game have words in them that your kids might even recognize. So the original game from 1999 required at least a Pentium 90 megahertz with 16 megs of RAM and 50 megs of hard drive space. I think at this time I had a blazingly fast Pentium 200 megahertz with 32 megs of RAM and uh, it was complete with a 15 inch CRT monitor so I don't think I had trouble running this game if I remember correctly. Graphically, the game required a minimum of 640 by 480 resolution, though you could jack the pixels all the way up to 1024 by 768 at high color. Now, high color is not something we've talked about very much yet. It was introduced around the time of Windows 95. Generally, we've seen games supporting 256 colors. The reason for this was that color was generally stored in a single 8-bit RGB for red, green, blue value with three bits of the eight bits representing red, 
three bits representing green, and two bits representing blue. This allowed for 256 combinations of ones and zeros to form 256 distinct color values. Now with increases in CPU power and storage and memory and all that noise, developers were able to start mapping colors using two bytes instead of one, which instead of giving us eight bit color, we now had 16 bit color. This jacked the color palette from a mere 256 colors to over 65,000 colors. 16 bit color used five bytes each for red and blue and six bytes for green. Obviously doubling the color storage space allowed us to exponentially grow the number of colors we could map out. You can definitely tell that in the game. It looks very good. While it's still 2D, animations are smooth, sprites are quite small, but despite that, it is easy to pick out individual guests, staff members, individual ride cars, and much, much more. While I won't say the game is a graphical achievement, it really does look quite good. Finally, the music in the game was composed by Alistair Brimble. Brimble was a huge producer of video game music starting from the mid-80s up to today even. Uh, he's done music for over 100 games on just the Amiga alone. Uh, music in Roller Coaster Tycoon ranges from traditional carnival fare to spooky horror style music to techno. Uh, there's over 40 music tracks in the first game and its expansions. As much as you may not necessarily notice it, the music plays a huge part in this game. Your merry-go-round plays any number of kind of standard carnival tunes, and when it breaks down, the music slowly comes to a halt like shutting down a record player. So it's like... When that music is temporarily gone, the music, uh, you know, the park just feels weirdly empty and it becomes kind of creepy. So you really want to get that music back up and running as soon as possible, and it really does sound great. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, so dev story time. The dev story for Roller Coaster Tycoon sort of schooled me a little bit. Uh, since the first Tycoon game that came about was done by Sid Meier, and it was also the first one I covered, uh, I always kind of assumed that the entire Tycoon franchise was kind of owned by Sid. Uh, when I covered Railroad Tycoon, I realized, kind of in passing, that this wasn't the case, but we're going to look at it in more detail here. Roller Coaster Tycoon is, in fact, not a Sid Meier game. It is the brainchild of Chris Sawyer. Chris was born in Dunblane, Scotland back in 1969. He attended Strathclyde University in Glasgow, where he acquired a computer science degree. His first entry into the games industry was in 1983 where he wrote games for the Zilog Z80 8-bit computer. He then went on to work on DOS conversions of popular Amiga games for a variety of developers and publishers, including Acorn Software, who we've talked about in the past. His first association with Microprose was also his first tycoon game, 1994's Transport Tycoon. This was a fairly intense business simulation in the vein of Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon, your goal was to build a worldwide transport empire, managing your routes, stations, and different modes of transportation, and all kinds of other aspects of the business. Transport Tycoon became a benchmark for business simulations and is definitely a game I will most likely cover on the show in the future. The game was so popular that, of course, he wanted to make a sequel. So as Sawyer was working on the revised and updated game engine for Transport Tycoon 2, 
he started to develop an interest in the physics, design, and business of roller coasters. He became so infatuated with them that he suddenly changed tracks on Transport Tycoon 2 and tweaked his new engine to build a roller coaster business simulation instead of his Transport Empire building game. He was that intrigued by the whole, the whole thought and theory and aspects and all that stuff of roller coasters. So the game was tentatively titled White Knuckle and stayed that way through the majority of its development. When Microprose decided to pick it up, it was changed to Roller Coaster Tycoon, so it could take its proper place in Microprose's Tycoon series of business simulations. Now, the bulk of the programming of this game was done by Sawyer himself. In a very unusual approach in a native Windows game in 1999, the bulk of the game's code was built in x86 Assembler. Now, I've explained it at least once before, but Assembler is a very low-level programming language. It's basically one step above machine code. It's basically one step above binary. Uh, Assembler is very efficient from an execution standpoint, since you as the programmer have direct control over the computer's processor, memory registers, and other internal hardware. Now, the challenge is that there's almost no automation or abstraction in the Assembler. So in a different programming language, uh, you have a lot of tools and utilities that do a lot of work for you. In Assembler, that kind of stuff doesn't exist. It takes a lot of code to accomplish very simple tasks. For this reason, around this time, most Windows games are programmed in higher-level languages like C++. Higher-level languages, as I said, abstract hardware interactions via libraries and objects. If you want to manipulate graphics on the screen, you leverage the graphics libraries in C++. In Assembler, you have to tell the processor exactly what you want, where to access resources, what hardware interrupts to trigger to tell the computer you want to put something on the screen. It's really a lot of work. The upshot is that the code is much, much smaller and runs much, much faster because there's no kind of middleman doing this translation in between of what you want the computer to do. Additionally, the graphics were rendered in 3D modeling software and then snapshots were taken to make the 2D sprites visible from all angles. Uh, Chris Roberts kind of did the same thing in the original Wing Commander, but this was done to a much, much higher degree. Given that all the objects could be viewed from four different angles, and many objects spun around and twisted quite a bit, including things like the roller coasters, the snapshots for certain objects became very numerous. The most extreme example of this was the flying coaster car. Because it can move every which way, twist and turn, the object consists of almost 2,900 individual frames. This is just one little object in the entire game, and they are all basically rendered to this level of detail. The coolest part of that extreme amount of effort is that you don't even notice it. The cars run around their tracks and look great, but you have no idea how much information is being processed at that one exact moment in time. It's huge, but again, it's done so well that it's like any special effect. When they're done super well, you don't even notice them, and that's just a testament to kind of the, the attention to detail that was put into the development of Roller Coaster Tycoon. So with all this effort and all this programming kung fu done, the game released in 1999. Roller Coaster Tycoon was hailed as a huge success for its originality and its attention to detail. Negatives were the lack of a sandbox mode. I mean, you can only play the game via the preset scenarios, which does limit the player in terms of pure creativity. Also, as mentioned, the isometric views did tend to cause some problems in relation to roller coaster construction. And finally, the construction interface wasn't the most user-friendly thing on Earth. Despite that, the game was well-reviewed and sold well enough so that two expansions, Corkscrew Follies and Loopy Landscapes, were released. These expansions introduced new scenarios, rides, and facilities. The second expansion, Loopy Landscapes, also introduced more complex scenario objectives. Instead of just visitor count and park rating, 
you now saw challenges like building the number of like things like building a number of roller coasters above a set excitement and intensity rating and unlimited time scenarios where you would fail if your park rating dropped below a certain level. So after these expansions in 2002, Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 was released. The objective of the game remained the same, complete scenarios by managing your park and building rides. However, many of the issues which the first game was panned for were dealt with. While still locked into an isometric view, the construction interface was vastly improved. You could lay sections of track individually, any shops or rides could be built underground, items could be locked into position and then moved up or down without moving them horizontally. In addition, players can import their own custom scenery items that you know they made in some kind of graphics program. Finally, in later versions of RCT2, that's Roller Coaster Tycoon 2, the, uh, the sandbox mode and Roller Coaster Designer were added, which allowed players to design rides without the pressure of the game time winding down. These rides could then be saved and imported into the game. Now, weirdly enough, despite all these improvements, Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 didn't review quite as well as the first and was initially not a huge draw for fans of the franchise. Graphically, the game didn't look much better than the original. Eventually, though, the merits of this sequel over the original came through and it went on to be the bestseller of the series. 2004 saw Roller Coaster Tycoon 3. Chris Sawyer acted as an advisor on this game but didn't partake directly in its development. The engine was completely redesigned to be full 3D and introduced cool features like Coaster Cam, which allowed players to actually ride their roller coasters. Uh, in addition to scenarios, this game featured a career mode where objectives and constantly were, uh, were constantly changing and they were time sensitive. So for example, uh, you needed to impress a visiting celebrity before they left the park, build a certain level of ride before time limit expires, etc. Another cool thing that you could do in Roller Coaster Tycoon 3 was import your pre-built roller coasters and your existing parks from the previous two games, and they were actually converted from the 2D format of those two games into full 3D. So you could see your existing parks, your existing rides rendered in 3D. You could ride them on the coaster cam. So it was a really cool thing for uh, for longtime players of the game to see kind of their previous creations that they had only ever imagined in 3D actually rendered in full 3D. So Roller Coaster Tycoon 3 was generally well received and hailed as the uh, the true sequel to the original whereas the second game was viewed more as more of a polish and a retread of the original uh, as opposed to a fully new experience. The game was criticized though for being quite buggy on release. There were quite a few crashes and graphical glitches, but despite that and uh, eventually some patches were put out, uh, the game was actually quite well reviewed and quite enjoyable. So what does the future hold for Roller Coaster Tycoon? Well, I kind of thought initially nothing because I hadn't heard a thing about it, but much to my surprise, there is some current news relating to Roller Coaster Tycoon. Sadly, none of it's related to the PC market, but it is, in fact, interesting nonetheless. So, in October 2012, just a few months back, Roller Coaster Tycoon 3D was released for the Nintendo 3DS. It uses the two screens of the 3DS, showing a 3D kind of view of your park, as you would see in Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, uh, that shows on the main screen, and a top-down map view with the action buttons on the lower screen. The stylus and touchscreen are also used to design coasters. Finally, a new mode called Coaster Story blends the tutorial along with ongoing challenges, a narrative storyline, and unlockable content, which makes for some good fun. This is kind of the approach that I thought the original game should have taken. 
So this is now available on the 3DS if you have such a thing. Sadly, uh, I only have uh, a very, very old uh, Nintendo DS Lite, I think, perhaps, which I haven't touched in probably four years. But uh, aside from that, if you have a 3DS and you like Roller Coaster Tycoon, definitely check this out. Uh, finally, in news regarding Roller Coaster Tycoon, Atari has reported that a remake of the original Roller Coaster Tycoon is coming out for iOS and Android devices in the first quarter of this year. Uh, we don't know much else about it at this point, uh, especially how it'll be modified to support a touch interface. Also, I just heard recently this week that uh, Atari has entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, so I'm not sure if we'll see this title coming out or if the bankruptcy protection uh, situation will even affect the release since it's supposed to come out in Q1 as it is. But uh, as usual, I'll keep you guys posted. If you guys hear anything about it, feel free to let me know and, uh, and, and we will go from there. I'd be very interested to play this on my iPad, I think. So as we always do, let's chat about where we can get Roller Coaster Tycoon today. So all three games, Roller Coaster Tycoons 1, 2, and 3, are available on GOG.com. The first game is $5.99 US, the second is $9.99, and the third is $19.99, all DRM-free from GOG.com. Roller Coaster Tycoon 3 is also available on Steam for $29.99. I'm not sure why it's $10 more expensive on Steam, but uh, it's there too if you want to get it that way. Hi, this is Chris. And this is Rick. And we're the hosts of the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. We're celebrating the original Battlestar Galactica series, and we're doing that by uh, watching an episode in total and commenting on it as it runs. And you know what's really fun about it is we're attempting to bring guest hosts in with us so that we can talk kind of like that mystery science theater kind of thing. And we sometimes we make a little fun of the episode, and sometimes we talk about how cool it is, so you just never know what you're going to get when you listen. Yes. So come and join us. We're on iTunes. You can find us by searching for Ragtag Fugitive Podcast, and we're on the Stitcher Radio Network. You also can visit our cool website and make comments and have fun looking around in the officer's lounge and all that jazz by going to Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. Dot com. You have our word as a warrior. Word as a warrior? Plank down your cubits and come on over. And let's play a game of Pyramid. The Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. By your command. So before I give you my verdict on Roller Coaster Tycoon, we got a voicemail from Josh where he talks a little bit about both Full Throttle from last week and his memories of Roller Coaster Tycoon. So take it away, Josh. Hey, Mr. Mastriani, Josh from Portland, Oregon here. Uh, just checking in again with the upper memory block. Um, I really enjoyed the last podcast of Full Throttle. Um, that was such a cool game. And uh, <clears throat> the amount of, uh, of, of inventiveness that went into that story, I think, influenced um, games for years to come and still is. Um, well, in that game and, and the original, or the early LucasArts Adventure games, um, they, they pulled no punches when it came to uh, creativity. So um, we appreciate that. Uh, uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon was um, a lot of fun when I was a teenager. Uh, I played it a lot um, on the computer, on, on the PC. Uh, and uh, me and my friend Ryan used to just sit there and build the biggest roller coasters we could. And then, of course, like leave one sec- section undone at the end, um, unfinished, and then proceed to open the ride and run it and, you know, <laughs> fling patrons off to their deaths. Uh, you know, you did it. Um, that was fun, but, um, the biggest memory I have of that game really wasn't even that game. Um, I think, uh, it was put out by 
was it Microprose? I'm sure you covered that in the podcast already. But uh, anyway, I think it was like 1999. Sounds right. When that came out, and then the following year, um, Activision published a game. I think it was Activision called uh, Ski Resort Tycoon. I don't know if you ever played that. It wasn't well known at all. Um, and uh, the reason that game was a big deal to me was because I grew up in Colorado, um, skiing, going to ski resorts, and then my first job out of high school was at, um, well, during high school and after, um, was at a ski resort, and I did that for the better part of a decade. Um, and uh, so that was, it was very cool. It was very relevant to me. So uh, I played Ski Resort Tycoon a lot. It was harder than, uh, than Roller Coaster Tycoon, um, and, and there weren't quite as many possibilities as far as um, what kind of things you could build, what kind of attractions you could have. But there were all kinds of Easter eggs in the game that made it fun. Uh, the one that I can remember <laughs> right off hand was that there was a Yeti that would plague your uh, ski resort. And as the ski resort got bigger and better, uh, he would have little Yetis. And uh, they would randomly pop out of the trees and devour your patrons, which was pretty cool. But uh, um, the Yeti thing was a good way to lose money. But also it was kind of a, um, you know, it lent a lot of charm, I think, to your to your virtual ski resort. Um, and, yeah, Roller Coaster Tycoon influenced that game. It also influenced, I think, um, further games, not only... Um, not only on the computer, but tabletop games. Um, I've played a couple of games that are like that, that are um, like sort of business planning um, development type games, uh, like Ticket to Ride was one that I can think of that are tabletop, and they just completely smack of, of the, um, the Roller Coaster Tycoon sort of influence. Um, so yeah, it's very cool. Um, almost uh, almost like just taking The Sims and making it, you know, more uh, focused, I guess. So uh, anyhow. Um, thank you, Joe, for putting out the upper memory block. Um, I look forward to it, and um, every every time it comes out, I'm, I get all excited. So um, we can't wait to hear this one. All right, buddy, take care. Well, thank you so much. That was a great comment. And, you know, I, I have never heard of Ski Resort Tycoon, so I, I went and I, I Googled a little bit around, and it actually looks like a pretty cool game. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a, a skier myself. I'm actually heading out next week, heading out west for a week on a, on a ski vacation at a ski resort. So hopefully there won't be any Yetis there. But um, yeah, I'm definitely going to check out that game. That sounds very, very cool. And, you know, it is true. I think maybe not only with uh, with Roller Coaster Tycoon, but also with uh, Railroad Tycoon, Transport Tycoon, like all these kind of early tycoon games. I know Railroad Tycoon was based on a tabletop game uh, all about locomotives and that kind of thing. So, you, I, I mean, you can really see how evolutions happen in in the in this space. So, you know, it'll start from the inspiration from a book or a tabletop game. It'll go to a video game. The video game will take off and then following, you know, video games that follow on and tabletop games that follow on, uh, you know, all kind of take from that. I mean, you can see the same thing with, with World of Warcraft. I mean, you know, obviously before MMORPGs, you had single-player RPGs on computers, and before that, you had things like Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop games. And, you know, Dungeons & Dragons really inspired video game RPGs, which then inspired MMOs, and, you know, World of Warcraft kind of... I don't know if it created the whole, you know, DPS, healer, tank, holy trinity of character classes, but I know, you know, I haven't played tabletop D&D for a long time, but I know the, the current version of D&D really kind of takes that paradigm that was set forth in MMOs 
and uh, applies it to tabletop D&D. So now instead of having some characters that do kind of everything, you really do have characters that tend to focus a bit more on DPS, uh, healer, tank, kind of that combination. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting to see how things go from the source material to a different form, and then that different form proceeds to kind of re-affect the source material. So very, very, very interesting. Thanks so much, Josh. I love it, love it when you send in voicemails, and I love it when anyone else sends in voicemails or emails. So please, as always, feel free to do that. So now that we got someone else's opinion on Roller Coaster Tycoon, let's get to mine. Does Roller Coaster Tycoon hold up? Um, I guess I'll say this. I had a lot of fun playing this game. I played it a bit when it was originally out, but it was never really one of my favorites. I had a lot more fun uh, playing it this time than I remembered having when I played it the first time around. There are certainly some foibles with the interface. Some aspects of the game are not entirely clear without jumping onto Google and doing some reading, and the lack of a sandbox mode really is a huge negative in my point of view. All that said, this is a fun game that allows you to be creative in a very fun environment. So I guess that means I'm giving this one a half-half. If you can get past some interface issues, there is an amazingly fun and addictive game here to play. So if you want to, give it a whirl. That was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Alienation, the newcomers podcast, is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alienation. This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode, as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please subscribe to Alienation, the newcomer's podcast on iTunes, or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. So that's it for another week. Thanks to Josh for his voicemail and all of you for hanging out with me week after week as we talk about all these great old games. Now, I'm going to be away next weekend and the weekend after that when I would generally do the show. So we may have to skip a week for the next show. I'll post more details on the Facebook group and the Twitter feed when I get closer to knowing what's going to happen. Uh, if I do take an extra week, I am going to use it well. Next time, I'm going to do the granddaddy of Sierra Adventure Games, the King's Quest series. I'm going to try and cover all eight games. This series is tied hugely into the history of Sierra itself and, frankly, the history of the video gaming industry itself, so it promises to be a great one. I expect some emails on this one, folks. So with that in mind, you can send me your emails or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com and on his podcast, Take Him With You. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can follow the show at Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews there. I love them and it makes people see the show. So that is that. Thank you all. And we will see you next time for King's Quest. 
here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.